referendum has been held, the letter has triggered Article 50, uh, Britain's decision to leave, and the process is underway. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It is not in our interests to see the Republic of Ireland do anything other than prosper. We cannot agree to do this unless we have firm guarantees that there will not be a hard border in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Paddy Wants to Know Brexit with me, Jack Good, and my co-host, Brian Mann. What's up, guys? How you doing? Uh, Brian, we've got a person who's uniquely positioned to talk about Brexit, Darren McCaffrey, who is, amongst other things, a Fermanagh man. A former Westminster correspondent for Sky News. And soon-to-be former Dublin correspondent for Sky News. And also soon-to-be the new political editor for your news. So he's basically got everything covered in this angle from the media perspective. Yeah, he's been there, done that, got the t-shirt. So you're just back from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Brexit seems to be everywhere. Did the Fringe Festival avoid Brexit? Uh, there were uh, two key notable figures or features on every single, what seemed like every single uh, poster of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Uh, one of them uh, was Donald Trump, unsurprisingly, uh, and the other was Brexit. Uh, what was interesting, though, about Brexit was uh, last year, clearly, there were a lot of comics uh, taking the piss out of Brexit, essentially. Uh, And comedians do tend to be on the liberal left, as we all well know. Uh, What was interesting this time was actually there's a slight backlash and we had quite a few right-wing comedians uh, trying to uh, make fun of the parody that Brexit's become. Uh, I mean, I went to listen to Simon Evans, who, uh, you know, uh, was making lots of jokes um, about the backlash against Brexit. So, uh, yeah, it definitely... From the the Brexiteer side, was it? From the Brexiteer side, yeah. So... uh, that's like kind of counterweight to uh, what you'd normally get at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I suppose, speaking of caricatures, um, we were talking beforehand about you're obviously from Fermanagh, you were working in Westminster, you get the job to come to Dublin. What were you told to expect in Dublin? And maybe what caught you off guard about Dublin? What was different to the caricature or expectation you had? I grew up here. I go. I came home all the time. I have to say I was very unfamiliar uh, with Dublin in many regards in the sense that even though I've been here lots and lots um, I think it's actually quite difficult to grasp somewhere until you do actually live there and there is also a tendency and this is whatever you think about the border it has changed uh, some things uh, in, in in the last 100 years so not least of all that lots of my friends who went to university in Ireland went to Belfast to Queens and not necessarily to or to the University of Ulster and not necessarily to Trinity or UCT, which I think is interesting itself. And actually, it's, it, it it is remarkable how few people from the north do tend to go to Dublin universities. And so I would always tend to fly into Belfast rather than to Dublin, even though where my parents live, it's actually equidistant. It's two hours to Dublin, it's two hours to Belfast, because uh, the roads to Belfast are not that great. So um, so what surprised me, I suppose uh, what, I would, what I was pleased with uh, having moved from London is how manageable the city is uh, and how livable it is and how friendly the people are uh, and that is certainly true compared to, to, to Londoners um, but also how expensive Dublin is uh, you know, not least of all, I rent, and it surprised <laughs> me that it's more expensive than London. Uh, but it's not just 
uh, accommodation. It is also going to the local supermarket, going to SuperValue or Dunn Stores or Tesco or whatever. Like, you know, it is notably more expensive in terms of just everyday costs, eating in restaurants, drinking. Uh, so that, so that slightly took me aback. Um, but ultimately, I think that there was a sense that Dublin was on the way up, that there was a, a sense of optimism and opportunity again. Uh, and I have to say that has slightly ebbed away from London. You know, I was in London for 10 years, but I was there when the Olympic Games had happened, which were an enormous success. Uh, and actually, I think there was a sense around that time in London that it was the best city in the world. And there was a, it, everyone was terribly pleased that it had all gone very well and everyone was on a slight high. Um, and really since that, but most notably, I think, since the Brexit referendum, given the fact that London obviously voted overwhelmingly to stay uh, and there is no uncertainty. I think that has uh, has kind of dampened down uh, London's claim to be the greatest city in the world. I suppose then to crack on into Brexit, how have you found reporting for a UK audience from Ireland on Brexit? Yeah, I, I think uh, ultimately... I feel that I've got kind of two roles here. One is that when I first arrived, um, all the politicians I met, everyone I met, there was this sense of like almost disbelief about why would you ever do this? And ultimately, why just not have a second referendum? You know, people will change their minds. They'll see how ridiculous it is. Now, that is still possibly going to happen. I still think it's unlikely, but it's still possibly going to happen. But I think that was a misjudgment of... um, Ireland versus the UK political system and how people think in 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 Britain in the sense that you guys have referendums all the time. Um, and so when you do have referendums all the time, yeah, of course, whatever happens tends to be followed through. But there is a sense that if you feel like you've kind of reached the wrong decision or something, as notably on certain European referendums, you kind of go back and have another one. Like the, the Brexit referendum in the UK was only the third ever national referendum. There was one to join the European Union, there's one about AV, uh, and there was one to leave uh, the European Union. So it it, it carried so much more weight um, because they just are so infrequent. So I think in part, I felt that my job was kind to explain, and also having followed UKIP around for many years and kind of getting to know the psyche of people who tend to vote Brexit, kind of trying to inform um, or anyone I could talk to here about why Brexit may well have happened. But also, yeah, a very a very great sense that essentially my role here was to explain to people in Britain uh, why Brexit mattered to Ireland, how impactful it could be here in Ireland. Uh, and essentially giving the Irish government and the Irish political systems kind of counterweight to what was being said in Westminster. Most notably, of course, on the border, uh, where there's an awful lot of ignorance uh, in the UK on it. Or I should say in the British mainland. And I mean, the Winston Churchill quote around the dreary steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone, you're obviously a proud Fermanagh man. I am, I am. Not like, least, not a football though. Not a football. Not a, not <laughs> not, not a, not a, football. I think Fermanagh is only one of two counties in all of uh, uh, Ireland who have not won a provincial, their provincial championship. Uh, Fermanagh and Wicklow, so. Well, they got close this year with the final. Well, yeah, I know. We always get close, but <laughs> then... In fact, we had the Irish border on earlier on in the series. Yeah. And Fermanagh were their pick. So they were before. Ah. So. Ah. But I, I guess what I'm saying is you were in Westminster, an Irishman. The perception on this side of the Irish Sea is that there is a big ignorance and indifference, really, to the Irish question. 
Yeah, I has think that cha- has that changed. Yeah, um, I think it's had to change, and it's had to change because, as we all know, and as that Winston Churchill uh, quotes uh, demonstrates, that as much as uh, Westminster and some British politicians talk nowhere um, Ireland, um, it always comes back to bite them in the butt, and that's been demonstrated throughout <laughs> a lot of uh, history uh, over the last couple of hundred years. So. I think there was, and there is an awful lot of ignorance. I think uh, there are a lot of Brexiteers who don't really care about the Irish border, notably people like Boris Johnson, um, who have not really mentioned an awful lot in the past. So has that changed? Yes, it's had to change. Of course, it's had to change. And I think uh, the fact that uh, lots of high-profile UK politicians have now visited the border, people like David Davis and Jacob Rees-Mogg and others have demonstrated that they they now now accept that it is important, not least of all because it is the only land border. And thus, in essence, whatever the future trade agreement is, well, it's going to be most explicit on the Irish border because that will be the frontier. I also do have to say a little bit that there is also somewhat of ignorance, you know, in the Republic as well. Um, Mm. I think there, you know, there are of course TDs and stuff that live and represent border constituencies, but I think there's also a South Dublin view that doesn't really understand the North or the border at all terribly well. I mean, it was also remarkable, you say, but things I noted when I came to, to Dublin is actually how few or how infrequent, I should say, people from Dublin would travel up to the north. So I suppose, is there then a workable solution on the border? Or what would be acceptable in the UK? Um, I mean, this is obviously incredibly complicated. uh, And there isn't an obvious solution. I mean, everyone's got their own solution. And the solution that, let's say, the European Union put it forward... Um, and the supported by the Irish government that if there is no comprehensive trade deal, which they say is their primary goal, that there should be a, a backstop arrangement. You know, is that workable? Well, it's workable in the sense that it's physically possible, but politically it's incredibly difficult, not least because it's uh, it would undermine, as the DUP and other unions would see it, the sovereignty of the United Kingdom. And it would, in a sense, make Northern Ireland different and more wedded to the European Union and, in essence, the Republic of Ireland. Uh, And so on the big constitutional issue, and when you think about the DUP, actually what trumps Brexit for them is the constitutional position of Northern Ireland, uh, that it becomes a very incredibly difficult uh, position for them. However, there is that counter-argument that Northern Ireland is already different anyway, not least of all because anyone born in Northern Ireland is automatically essentially an Irish citizen and in essence then a European Union citizen and that is not going to change. So away from kind of the backstop in terms of the logistics about trying to use some innovative never before used technology uh, that means the border is seamless and that there is no need for infrastructure. Uh, the, the, The thing is, is that possible? Yes, it is possible it is possible it could work the the problem is that it's just not tried and tested and the european union are of course worried about whether it does break some of their indivisible kind of uh, core things when it comes to to customers arrangements maybe you know Bertie hearn's solution which ultimately was uh just have a bit of smuggling and leave the border as it is and just accept <laughs> that we have to cope with it might, that might be the way forward so what has the irish government been too hard in the Brexit negotiations, to kind of flip it on its head? Um, I, again, when I first arrived, I was surprised by how little uh, the Irish border was being talked about, and most notably, bizarrely, by the Irish government themselves. Now, that 
changed, actually, uh, and relatively quickly. But I think in a bad way. And my criticism of the Irish government's approach is not that it's been too harsh, because ultimately anyone who criticises the Irish government for the actions they've taken uh, tend to be the people, most notably Brexiteers, who are making a decision what they think is in their own uh, self-interest as a nation. And it is entirely legitimate um, for Ireland to do exactly the same and to protect itself against the hardest of Brexit because it feels that that will be the most hurtful on the country. So my criticism is not that they've been too strong, is that there was no attempt in the year to 18 months since the Brexit referendum to kind of educate the British public about the border. Now, I think in part that was because lots of Irish politicians got their fingers burned by taking part in the Brexit referendum and trying to make an issue of it and it clearly didn't work. And there was a sense that this is none of your business and stick out of it. But I do think there is sympathy, a, a natural sympathy to the Irish point of view in the, UK, it's in the UK. And I just feel that it doesn't have to, you don't have to lecture people, you just inform them that this is why the border is important. This is why Brexit or a very hard Brexit could be very bad for Ireland. And there was just none of that. It's notable that Leo Varadkar has never done a long-form interview on British television at all. And so I think there was a sense that for British people, the Irish just kind of came up and punched them in the face, rather than with kind of saying, OK, we're going to take a really hard line on Brexit, rather than telling them, if you don't listen to our concerns... If you don't understand this, we might punch you in the face. So it, it kind of, it was that sense that I think British people were slightly taken aback by, whoa, where did this just come from? Why, why is Ireland being so mean to us now? And there was no sense that we'll be mean to you. What they should have done, I think, for the previous, you know, 18, 18 months to a year was kind of trying to inform people that we're going to have to take this hard line if you are determined to pursue this issue because the border and the impact of Brexit on Ireland matters an awful lot. We were talking about possible solutions there and impasses. And if you were to start from scratch, the obvious place to have the border is down the Irish Sea. Logistically, everything else like that. People would take issue with that in the sense that East-West trade is fundamentally more important to the Irish economy than actually North-South trade. Uh, now, there are logistical issues with the border because um, even though I don't think anyone's suggesting it's going to impact actually on the movement of people, Clearly, for a lot of farmers and for the movement of goods, it becomes physically quite difficult. But most notably, the border is contentious. Uh, you know, <laughs> for a lot of people, they don't want it to be there. Uh, and that's why any checks and stuff become really kind of politically sensitive. But if it was from an economic point of view, actually, east-west uh, trade between Ireland and Britain is more important than north-south. I mean, that that's getting into the territory of Irexit. <laughs> from that perspective, is it was that something? I mean, I suppose you you got the safety of departing soon enough that you can speak more freely on it. Is that something you could envisage ever happening? No, I have to say, I mean, I've n I've n I haven't come across any serious political opinion or indeed uh, public opinion out there that that suggests that Irexit should happen. And I think in part it, that sums up why Ireland will remember mean remember the European Union, why Britain's pursuing Brexit. You know, ultimately. Um, Ireland's history, and you can't get away from it, is part of, it, essentially it's been part of a bigger body that has not necessarily been entirely controlled. It's not been control of its destiny. You know, It was part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland for a very long period of time, but rule very much where it resided at Westminster. So it, it is 
by its very essence far more comfortable with that position because it's had to be in the past. And Britain's not, you know, and that's why Britain's relationship with the European Union has always been uncomfortable. Britain has been used to, as an historically superpower, to being in charge. And clearly in a union of 28 other nations, you're not. Not least of all because you're not the biggest and most powerful country in that union. Uh, And that in part, I think, explains the Brexit vote, but it also explains why Ireland is probably unlikely to leave. You mentioned it earlier, and it's something you wrote about even as far back as last year, in terms of Brexit and the Irish border perhaps undermining unionism. Could you maybe expand on that? Yeah, and I think it's it's something people have explored uh, quite a lot over the last um, 18 months, particularly quite recently, though. Yeah, I think it is quite difficult for unionism in the sense that what has benefited unionism is a quite significant portion of moderate Catholic nationalist population of Northern Ireland who've become quite comfortable with living in Northern Ireland because they feel that they get the the best of both worlds in the sense that uh, the border doesn't really matter to them. Yes, it exists, but it doesn't really exist in any physical sense. So if you live, as my parents do, six miles from the border, you know, it's not notable. It doesn't really have an impact on their lives. Some of my cousins work in Monaghan, they, they live in Tyrone. It doesn't really matter. So why then have a United Ireland if one of the obstacles, the border doesn't really matter? And you can be, remain an Irish citizen, you can stay as an EU citizen. But at the same time, uh, as lots of my relatives and friends and stuff will testify, you also get access to the National Health Service for free, which is very important. And I think a uh, would be a bigger issue in any constitutional referendum than people probably give credence for. So the problem, though, for unionism with Brexit is if it goes wrong, first of all, Northern Ireland economically will be badly impacted. And we all know that nationalist movements tend to be motivated by bread and butter politics because politics is bread and butter. Uh, But second of all, the border becomes an issue again. And it becomes an issue most notably for those moderate nationalists and they're important because with the demographic change in Northern Ireland, it is those moderate Catholic nationalists that unionists are going to have to rely upon if there was to be any type of border poll or indeed, you know, the continued legitimacy of Northern Ireland in terms of power sharing and the existence of the institutions that there are kind of around today. <laughs> and, and in a previous life, I think I'm correct in saying you worked in Stormont briefly. Yes. And I was reading a couple of biographies that said that you were interested in politics and political, but not party politics. We talked about the impasse at Stormont at the moment. Do you think that there is a new force possible that could emerge or a new moderate force to overcome the current impasse? Or is it just too ingrained and entrenched? Um, Yeah, so I was at Stormont uh, back when it was literally just after Ian Paisley and Martin Guinness had uh, become the Chuckle Brothers. And it was an incredible time because Stormont and devolution had just been restored and there was this kind of slight sense of amazement that these two people who no one ever thought would ever get along uh, seemed to be getting along uh, actually very well indeed but there was a sense that this was now actually quite normal this was the new normal it would be the new normal and I think there's an incredible frustration that that's not been the case and actually every time I go up to Belfast or to anywhere in the north and talk to people there's almost they almost want to see the return of direct rule because they're so peeved off with their politicians instalment. Uh, the problem is, yeah, it is so ingrained, um, and I think both sides have now backed themselves into a corner that they can't really move from, i.e., the DUP and, and, and Sinn Fein. And there's just not been the capacity 
you know, the Alliance Party have done reasonably well. But when you look at the SDLP, uh, which just declines uh, beyond estimation, and, and, and Mike Nesbitt's leadership of the Ulster Unionist Party, which could have done a very liberal, moderate route, again, just didn't succeed. That I, I just feel there will be no movement. And, and given how difficult politics will probably become in Northern Ireland because of Brexit and also because the institutions uh, won't be there, and so there's no day-to-day compromise, I, I can't see that changing anytime soon. So I suppose, is it really just a classic case of the unionists not knowing how good they had it? And then they went and, you know, they weren't fully responsible for it, but they had a, a big part in kind of backing Brexit and money, etc. I thought uh, it was actually a unusual or potentially a questionable decision for the DUP to back Brexit. Now, I get it. They are British nationalists in many regards, and they fit into the precise mould that you would think of Brexiteers. But yeah, I don't know how much credence was given to the impact that it might well have on, if it went wrong, on uh, on Northern Ireland and its position within the UK. Uh, and I do think it is notable two things. First of all, of course, Northern Ireland voted to remain. Uh, but second of all, you know, the Ulster Unionist Party which, you know, is not an irrelevant party, but it's not what it used to be. But, I mean, it campaigned to remain. Uh, and clearly, I think there was a recognition from some unions, at least, that actually a difficult Brexit, if it were to happen, would be would be difficult also uh, for the union. And, mm. and you obviously covered Westminster extensively. How were the DUP perceived in Westminster? And we were on a previous pod, we were going through, there was a list of, I think, 13 different coalitions within uh, Westminster and Sammy Wilson actually had his own particular branch within this thirteen. Uh, are they are they seen as an oddity, or is I mean, wh- how are they? How do they go down? Um, so yeah, I think the big thing after the the big thing after the election result was certainly the level of ignorance that was also about the DUP, even at Westminster, where uh, lots of journalists, lots of my colleagues, were trying to work out who this party are, uh, what they stand for, uh, how they'd be likely to vote, what they'd be likely to demand in any supply and confidence uh, deal. But the general perception, I think, even amongst Conservative MPs, is that they are, you know, illiberal, uh, right-wing, and kind of the brethren from Ulster that you would kind of expect. But also good negotiators, because these are politicians who've been in negotiations in tricky situations for, for long periods of time. But for the Conservative Party, clearly at the time, a very uh, a necessary evil, I think, is how lots of Conservative MPs, while not publicly admitting it, is what they'd say in private. And then, I suppose, on the same vein, how is abstention seen, or is it seen? Like, is it noticed that Sinn Féin abstain? I have to say, I don't... Uh, it, it's not been a big issue at Westminster, not least of all because, OK, it would make things a bit more difficult for Theresa May, but it wouldn't fundamentally change the dynamic of, of the parliamentary makeup. Every so often, there's always a story about Sinn Féin claiming its expenses and not taking its seats. But I can say it, it's not a big, it's not a big issue really. So I suppose looking forward for the listeners, what are the like three or four big things that they should be looking out for for the next couple of months? Well, obviously the big next landmark thing is the the EU Council summit at the end of October, which is when the withdrawal agreement was meant to be signed. You know, it's it's quite difficult to tell. So the the problem with Brexit is there are so many cogs at uh, play here. Obviously, what's happening in Brussels between Michel Barnier and Dominic Raab and how those kind of technical negotiations are, are happening. There was lots of criticism. David Davis wasn't necessarily on top of 
of all of this. But ultimately, you know, there is that work. There's the work undoubtedly in the UK civil service and in the European Commission uh, where they are, we would hope and think, trying to come up with the actual technical solutions that, that, that want to happen. Then there are the, there's the political dynamic at a European level. Interestingly, of course, Theresa May broke off from a holiday to go and visit Emmanuel Macron in the south of France. And she had just gone to see Angela Merkel before um, before she went on holiday. And Jeremy Hunt, the new UK uh, foreign secretary, has been travelling around visiting lots of European capitals. So you've got that political dynamic as well. Then you've got what's happening within the Conservative Party. You know, one of the things we're going to have to look out for is the Conservative Party conference. That's going to be a crucial moment. I think given Boris Johnson's comments about the burqa and given Theresa May's continued vulnerability, he will be a big feature of that conference. And and I mean, I suppose full disclaimer on this one, because you've had a, a somewhat of a run in with Boris Johnson before. I think he described your actions as a pointless stunt. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, which was slightly ironic, given the fact that I was talking to him about a pointless stunt that he had also done. I suppose just for the listeners who don't know, you, you handed him a giant check with three hundred and fifty million pounds to the NHS. Uh, yeah, which he refused to sign, even though, of course, that was a uh, pledge uh, from Brexit <laughs> that uh, has yet to to come through. But we we've not actually had Brexit yet, so we we shall see. Boris is Boris, as uh, Tony once Tony Blair once said about John Prescott. So it'll be notable what, what he does at the Conservative Party conference. And also just the continuing infighting with the Conservative Party. You know, how far is Jacob Rees-Mogg prepared to push things? Um, just how big are the kind of really hardened Remainers? You know, your Ken Clocks and your Anna Soupies and your Dominic Greaves. I mean, how much are they prepared to also defy uh, Theresa May? Then you've got the Labour Party. Is their position shifting? Are they now getting to a position where they might actually support a second referendum? But also how united they on Brexit. Then you also have to chuck in things like Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks, who are now starting to recognise that there is a possibility that Brexit might be derailed. And so, you know, he said at the weekend that he now feels he needs to get back involved in frontline politics with going around campaigning in the country. And to counter that, you've got, you know, lots of very wealthy people donating to the sense of a, a second referendum. Will there be a second referendum? Again, I still think it's unlikely. I think the two things that are unlikely to happen, I think I can't make a prediction about what is going to happen. I think, <laughs> let me make two predictions about what I think will not happen is I think a second referendum is going to be very, very difficult. I think there has been possibly a shift in public opinion for the first time in the last couple of months uh, against Brexit. I don't think it is as uh, great or notable that it would spark a second referendum, not least of all because it would be incredibly divisive. I'm not entirely sure really who wants it, uh, apart from a, a very you know hardcore of... of, of Remainers. So I think that is unlikely. And I secondly think that a hard Brexit or no deal Brexit, I should say a no deal Brexit is also unlikely, simply because there is not the parliamentary will for it. There only are about 50 to 60 Conservative MPs and two or three Labour MPs who would support essentially Britain falling out of the European Union and going to WTO rules. It's about a tenth of the House of Commons. And so under those circumstances, I think whatever happens, I think no deal is also very, very unlikely because there is just no parliamentary support for it. I think it's probably more likely, I'm not saying this is likely, but more likely the parliament may well vote or the government will be forced to extend negotiations beyond March rather than extend Article 50, essentially, rather than fall out with no deal. And, I mean, 
a lot of those predictions there have been focused on the internal domestic politics and even the internal party politics of the Conservative Party. I suppose in terms of what deal is presented to the Parliament eventually, uh, you've mentioned the shuttle diplomacy there of Jeremy Hunt and even the Prime Minister. Is Dominic Rabb going to make a difference? Is is there going to be any shift in the position there? Uh, no, simply the fact that obviously Theresa May has made it very clear that, you know, even though it's been happening really for the last year or so that, that she is now in charge of Brexit negotiations. I mean, essentially, Michelle Barnier and Dominic Rabb are ambassadors, really, aren't they, for the European Union in Britain? You know, I, I'm sure the face-to-face meetings do help, but ultimately that's not where the power resides. Michelle Barnier is acting on behalf of the Commission, of uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, and also the, you know, the 27 other nations. Uh, and Dominic Rabb is... It's working on behalf of Theresa May so uh, and Ollie Robbins of the UK Civil Service. So I think in reality, Dominic Rabb is not going to make a, a massive difference. And I think in reality, that's not actually where the negotiations are taking place. So Brexit aside in UK politics, just for our listeners, blunt question, have, have both parties just become institutionally racist recently? <laughs> um, no, I think... Um, I think with anti-Semitism, I mean, it's clearly been an issue that has been raised by lots of Labour MPs, particularly Jewish MPs over the last couple of years. I think the Labour Party leadership and I finally started to admit that they've not dealt with the issue very well and they've not dealt with some party members who've expressed pretty abhorrent views. I do also, you know, I, you know, critics, of course, of these people, supporters of Jimmy Corbyn would suggest that, you know, some of this politically motivated. As in, is it trying to undermine Jeremy Corbyn? I don't know. I mean, that's difficult to tell because clearly there is some anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, so it's quite quite difficult to equate. With the Conservative Party, you know, again, it's it is is Boris Johnson a racist? Uh, is he trying to stoke up racism, or is he trying to you know try to get himself back on the political uh, map again and using populist issues that he knows? appeal well to his base you know again it depends how you want to how you want to call it i don't think it's up to me and i I don't think it i think it's actually quite difficult to judge whether uh, what's really a play here and maybe maybe it's a bit of both in both cases you're going to brussels with your news i am what are you looking forward to the most um i think i'm looking forward to not just doing brexit (laughs) (laughs) though of course that will remain a big big part because you know it is a story that matters an awful lot uh, not just to uh, the UK, but matters to lots of European Union countries. Uh, and and so it will remain a big issue. You know, the second biggest economy uh, leaving any union would be a, a big story. And uh, people love the intrigue of it all. So that will be a story. But I'm also looking forward to covering other things. I'm looking forward to covering the populist movements in Italy. Uh, Catalonia in Spain is not going to Essentially, I think the fall of Angela Merkel, which is uh, almost inevitable, a matter of when, not if now. And the increasing kind of uh, right wing authoritarian style that we're starting to see in some Eastern European countries, notably the Czech Republic, Hungary and, and Poland. So, yes, I'm looking forward to kind of covering a continent which is uh, pulling itself in lots and lots of different directions. That's having to deal with an awful lot of stuff and not necessarily having to do Brexit 90 percent of the time. So this is your last one, like, fully break. <laughs> I suspect not. <laughs> this podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.